How are you doing? Oh, look at all these fine people in the room. <laughs> You've met Phil before, right? I have, Phil. Good to see you. In fact, uh, Phil and I crossed paths just, oh, just the other day, didn't we, Phil? Just last week. Yes, we did. Nice to talk to you again. And you, and you. Thank you. I have to tell you, Myron, my husband is still talking about that session from Monday with you as well. Last week. Oh, good, good. I hope, so. I hope in a, I hope in a good way. Um, mostly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. I'll take mostly. <laughs> uh, I'm excited for this. Are you? You're our first return guest, you know. That is exciting. That is exciting. You, you gotta have an eye. Third eye education. Third eye. Welcome to Third Eye. Today, we're joined by. One of our all-time favorite guests and our first returning visitor, Myron Dweck. He's a teacher and administrator from BC, Canada. He's been published four times in EL Magazine, author of the best-selling books, Grading Smarter, Not Harder, and Giving Students a Say. Make sure you connect with him on Twitter at Myron Dweck. The latest is my daughter started a snow cone business. And I, I could go on and on, but my daughter started this snow cone business. We built a cart. And I mean, I could go on now for the next, what, six hours about the permits, meetings with the fire department, meetings with the city. Now, keep in mind, hardly any of these meetings involve me. My daughter comes up to me and she says, uh, Dad, I have a meeting with the city health inspector at 11. I said, oh, you need me there? I don't need you there. I need a ride there. And so it's been, it's been watching the learning take place with that girl that has been mind-blowing. Three, three grade nine girls running a card. Well, now they're going into grade 10, but sourcing out product, running the numbers, you know, seeking out cheaper syrups, but then you fill the original bottles and, and all these meetings that it's just dripping with competency building. Yeah. That's just been incredible this summer. I love that. <laughs> that sounds absolutely fantastic. I think that's a through line in much of educational discourse is uh, uh, how do we make it so that it's authentic useful applicable <laughs> yeah how do i how do i measure that learning cuz clearly she's learning a ton okay okay you know watching watching my daughter tackle this i think the criteria were pretty clear at some points and not so clear in others like we had immense frustration around not going to mention the organization or the governmental body but Immense frustration around the criteria not being clear. Like at one point, okay, this was the rule. You got to have a, a sink. So we go install a sink. No, 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 no. It needs to be a dual sink. What do you mean a dual sink? Well, if you're going to have any cutlery you are cleaning, you must have a cleaning side and a rinsing side. It's in the law or it's in the permit. I was like, well, nobody said that. Well, it's just one of those things. So, well, it's really hard to act on just one of those things. So... So one of the things about rubrics, and I've really, really borrowed some of this thinking from uh, a group I worked with called the Alberta Assessment Consortium, is one of them is just be awfully clear on your criteria in those rubrics. And I think I, I ranted about this in our last podcast about the, the verbiage in those criteria. Be really clear that, you know, if it's install a dual bin sink, then the key verb there is install rather than think about a sink or consider a sink or research a sink, be really clear on that. And let's just make sure it's, it's clear in what students are supposed to do. One thought that occurs to me, Myron, is that I took some pretty strong encouragement at a passage in your book 
where you say that it's important to think about rubrics as being dynamic and open to change so that there's a lot of pressure to try to think of every, you know, contingency or eventuality and try to get everything included. But boy, that's a lot of anxiety. So maybe sometimes it's like, let's, let's float this thing and then see how kids respond and then they can help us to make it better. Well, there's no question, Phil, like uh, somebody who's, who's featured a fair bit in the book is a grade three teacher by the name of Scott McIntosh. And I was just so lucky to spend a lot of time in Scott's class it, through my district role. And I just watched this, this guy, he's a, he's a wizard in there with the grade three kids. He's those kids are so lucky to be with Scott McIntosh as a teacher. One of the things Scott and I did, Phil, was we were on, I think now it's version eight of a rubric we were doing with one of his math projects with his kids. Because when we did, when we just listened and observed and interacted, those grade three kids were saying things like, well, what does this word mean? No one knows what this word means. Well, like, well, we, we just made certain assumptions about, and I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't remember the word right now, but I remember the moment of, of, we kind of stopped everybody and said, like, does anybody know what this means in the rubric? And there's a bunch of just people, just grade three kids kind of staring at us like, no. Well, that's, that's good information. Hold feedback. You want to talk about engaging. Here's an idea Scott had, just, just to throw it out there. I think I write about it, is he puts the rubric up on his whiteboard in his grade three class. So he projects it onto the onto the whiteboard. And then he gets students to put down ideas or to do a problem or to, or to do something. And then on a sticky, and those students go up and place it on the rubric where they believe it belongs. And they can do this like it's free flow. Like kids are going up, they're sticking something to there. And one of their peers looks over them. Why, why are you putting it there? Well, here's kind of what I'm thinking. And it is genius just to get the students interacting with the rubric. And pardon my rant, but I can hear someone right now out there saying, yeah, but what if they're not accurate? That's not the goal. The goal is interacting and engaging with the assessment tool. And that is happening in spades. Yeah, I love that idea. The uh, projecting it and immediately kind of publishing it as a draft and saying, let's, you know, improve upon this together. But at the same time, you know, really pulling them into that process of figuring out what matters and why. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and then we're we're watching students do things with rubrics. You know, Phil, you, you mentioned responding to student input or to and to being reflective, uh, watching students interact with something called a single column rubric. To explain on a podcast, we just we just discovered a student who was using a series of highlighters to highlight the proficient criteria that the teacher had provided through the use of four different colors because there were four different categories, beginning, developing, proficient, and sophisticated. He was he was color coding his own learning criteria to reflect what he believed his assignment was. So Oh, it's mind. I'm not may not be doing a great job of describing it, but it was mind blowing what the student was doing. Right. Yeah. That that uh, feedback that was self generated is certainly richer than anything. And of course, think about the time it would take for the teacher to to unpack in that level of detail. So the fact that the student arrived there is, I think, really powerful. Oh, great point. Yeah, the teacher, the time the teacher would take to do that kind of feedback. Yeah. I think about that 
that feedback loop though too that you've created there there Myron and that you're talking about Phil which is that that element of if the students are giving that feedback to the teacher so the teacher can perfect that rubric um, and and other feedback forms like that, whether it be, you know, end of the quarter, or end of unit reflections, um, the more we can have that dialogue go both ways, the easier it is, you know, from, from my experience at least, for students to swallow the hard feedback that sometimes you as a teacher have to share with them, right? Because they know it goes both, it's, it's not just one direction. Yeah. No, it's so true, Heather. And and I, I guess I liken it a little bit to installing a set of window blinds, okay? Like, if you're going to install, and here we go, right? If you're going to install a set of window blinds, and I, I, I refer to this in the book, but I'll just get into it. Like, most of us don't bother with the instructions. Most of us don't bother with the how-to. Like, it's a set of blinds. And then, and then when you bump into trouble, you, you go back to that instruction manual. And if you're really struggling, you end up going back to the store you bought them in. But this is what I call the lean forward or lean away from. And where I, what I mean by this is, if I'm already engaged in the process of trying to install the window blinds, I have already struggled with the installing of the window blinds. When somebody says, hey, Myron, here's how you do it, I tend to lean forward in that conversation. Like I'm leaning into that conversation. As opposed to if somebody, if I'm not already invested in it, I often lean back. In a conversation, that's what I call the difference between the lean for the lean in and the lean out. I think this gets students to lean in to the conversation because they're already invested in it. They're already engaging in it. Then, if you, as a teacher, and Phil, you're mentioning the teacher time of this, if the teacher says, "Well, hey, here's something you could look at," if they're already invested in the process, I think it's similar to the window blinds analogy that that. I'm already struggling a bit with this. I'm already in it. I'm going to pay more attention to the conversation. I also like that when you have students participate in the process, it's less likely that we're going to bias our rubrics towards any particular group, because now we're hearing from everybody, we're less likely to have language that is exclusionary to students of certain backgrounds or uh, expectations that are culturally inappropriate, because we're getting a wider uh, understanding of uh, what the rubric is presenting. Yeah, I, again, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've probably said it 14 times in as many days that assessment in general is, is, is an equity conversation. It's part of this equity conversation. It, uh, I think many of us I'm, I'm, are prone to um, sometimes putting equity in its own folder somewhere and discussing equity when it's time to discuss equity. But it's, it should permeate everything we do, including rubric language, you know? Um, so I think it's a great point, Nick. Always know what that thing is going to be that will get kids to sit back or sit or, or to lean in. And I think that's where that differentiation piece comes in. I coached my son's volleyball team and there was some of these grade 11 boys were, were I needed to give some of them a ride home. My son was there, they're all talking. And two of them were like, um, one of them was like, hey, Jacob, Jacob, are you coming over to do the, get our homework done this afternoon? Well, this is a boy that that A never mentions homework. And if he does, it certainly isn't in an excited tone. And he's like, I'm listening to this. And it just happened to be the boy that I'm like, come on, no way. So I like, what what, what homework are you talking about? Well, Jacob and I are doing a podcast for English. And they were all over it, Heather. And it's it's lean in. It's got lean in written all over it. I uh want to call attention to the fact that we're leaning in in a podcast. Uh, uh 
So it's, it's not just for students. <laughs> uh, podcasts, not just for students anymore. Uh, and you're, you're calling attention uh, uh, to the fact that there's this difference between uh, learning something, having that lean-in performance. Uh, how can educators effectively shift focus from one to the other? Well, I, th- I think, Nick, sometimes you have to look at traits. Like, what are the traits of something? If, if, I'm, if I just want to perform on something, well, that's when I cram for it. Right. And I, we, we, we've done this. Like I, I've got a, uh, I've got an exam. I've got to do well on. I'm never going to take this course again, blah, blah, blah. So I, I cram the night before literally cramming as much information in my, in my brain as I can to go spit it out at 9am in room 117A at the university of Manitoba. And I'm, I'm either, I'm either aware at least consciously or subconsciously that I am likely never going to remember this stuff again. So we've, we've, I'm sure I speak for just about everybody that we've, we've been in situations where it's dripping with performance, not with learning. Right. So, well, what are, what are the characteristics of that, of that performance event in room 117A at the University of Manitoba? Well, let's, let's look, um, uh, jamming as much information as I can, uh, not learning over time, but learning over a very short, well, ingesting information over a short period of time to spit it out in a certain format. And I think, I think if we look at learning and the, and the tremendous amount of research that's gone on around this, I, I look at, uh, I think Nicholas Sapita and associates, this is in my book. Uh, they're, they're look at, um, so, so how, how do you get people to remember something over a long period of time? And they look at, they look at learning the, the gap between first covering something and covering it again. It's fascinating stuff. Well, it turns out that you want to stretch that out. You want to stretch out the, the amount of time it takes to learn something because by stretching out that time, you then greatly increase what's called the retention interval, the, the time that they would test people a year after and go, do you still remember kind of this this arrangement of, of things you wouldn't otherwise bump into. Uh, the test was fascinating. Well, it turned out, I believe, I'm just off the top of my head, I think uh, an, an interval of like 54 days or something resulted in a pretty good return on a year of remembering it. So to, to remember it for a year. But one of, their, one of their conclusions in their study was this is at odds with much of our educational practice of jamming a unit of study into a week or two. You know, so Nick, you ask you ask a good question. What are teachers supposed to do? Well, there's some really, really good advice out there from some of these people looking into this. One is uh, interleaving topics. So if you have taken a topic in one unit, hey, sprinkle a bit of that in in the next one. Uh, let's return back to it. Uh, a, a learning loop, as as one of my colleagues calls it. We also have to use our tests. Another piece of advice they have is using our tests as learning events. So anybody that's kind of still out there going, I don't, I don't like the retesting idea. There's no such thing as a retest. I just like to call it ongoing assessment right now. Like if you revisit those things, we just tend to learn them better. If people struggle through them, we tend to learn them better. Uh, I, I, I'm reminded of John Hattie who says, you know, what are, what we've, what we've trained our students to do is show up at school, sit up straight and watch their teacher work. And I think in classrooms where the teacher is doing the, okay, here it is, here it is, I'm going to show this to you. Okay, you got it, you got it. And the student kind of nods. Yeah, yeah, 
I think I do. Okay, good. You got it. The teacher is doing the learning. I think the student's doing the performing. And I, we got to switch that around a little bit. A lot of times, it seems to me, the student's perception is that school or even an individual class really can be boiled down to a list of things to do, most of which are unpleasant. And the sooner that I can check off those boxes, then I can be done. As soon as I can get those performances out of the way, then I can just move along. And so we need to try to swim against that current and instead move the target from that one performance and talk instead about how whatever is happening today is connected to yesterday and tomorrow in ways that are, in fact, meaningful for them. And I feel like we have a whole system in place uh, because we, we've trained our students to expect these things, but we've also trained our teachers to do okay. them. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's there's uh, systems of government, there's uh, college preparatory courses, uh, there's still books published every day uh, that yes. really are focusing on the end of units as opposed to retaining indefinitely skills. And I don't know where the pressure point is to change that. Meyer and you might but I have no idea. I think as long as there's one state test every year that as long as they remember it and tell them we're good, uh, we might have problems. We have trained almost all the players in our system to, to conform to some of these things. And some of those, some of those one shot state tests or pieces like that only further entrench that kind of behavior. You know what? Uh, one more thing about that Sapita research, which is a line that jumps out at me. What they said in it, I thought was just remarkably kind of just candid and everyday language. They said, really, what it boils down to is when it comes to your study methods, you really have to decide how long you want to remember something. And I was like, I was like, well, that's that's pretty obvious and interesting. And and I I think I heard who was it? Was it Dylan Willem or someone was talking about hotel room numbers, right? And I and this stuck with me. Like, do you need to remember your hotel room number? from a hotel you stayed in a year ago. No, you don't, you forget it. But in that short period of time while you're staying at that hotel, man, is it handy at like 11.30 PM when you're wandering the hallways to know what that number is. It's super handy, but you don't need to know it forever. And I think, and, I, and there's a, also research around this, I can't cite it off the top of my head, that suggests that we're incredibly well wired as a species to know that there are some things we need to remember in the short term and there's some things we need to remember in the long term. And we actually do a pretty good job of sorting those things out. I think the problem comes in when we think we are teaching our students things for the long term, but we are using short-term techniques. We're, we're just using short-term techniques for long-term learning goals. And I, that's, a, that's a conflict. That concept that you're talking about, Myron, scared the bejesus out of me when I first decided I was going to start playing with that because that that's a lot of just kind of loosey goosiness of of well we'll see what happens and you it's hard to plan for the structure of something that could take much longer than for I know I'm going to be doing this one and done thing. So for people right now who are thinking, yeah, but how do you do that? Um, a couple of things that that I did that worked was we did fishbowl Fridays. So on Fridays, we had conversations where the kids were talking in the center circle, outer circle was taking notes, we rotated through who was in the center circle, the students uh, designed those questions, but we also uh, ratcheted that up. So first early in the year, taught a little bit about 
what a fishbowl looks like, what are good questions, how do you do follow-ups? And then that was scaffolded. So then towards the end of the year, it was just like, okay, tomorrow's a fishbowl. What questions are you going to ask? What are we talking about? We did on, on Tuesdays, uh, had kind of a wonky schedule. So those were our silent sustained reading days. Students came in with their book of choice. We rotated through in small groups or sometimes one-on-ones so that we could have those conversations about what they were currently reading and choosing to read. And, and each student had their own set of skills that they were working on, but they knew on Tuesdays they were reading. They knew on Tuesdays they would be having dialogues with me. And Nick can attest to this. The other day we were meeting with some colleagues from the Rochester Public Library. And I had a student who was a barista at the coffee shop where we were meeting. And she was like, oh, Mrs. Like. And we talked a little bit about our teachers. And then she was saying, I just, I really remember those, the, the reading conferences we did. I really miss doing those conferences. And then I asked her, well, what book were you reading at the time? She didn't remember, but she was able to tell me the skills that she learned. And a lot of that came from that replication of of the fact that it wasn't, we are, we're doing this independent reading unit today. It was, we're doing this yeah. independent reading unit throughout the year and we're going to concentrate on it one day a week. And I think there's lots nice. of different types of structures like fishbowl Fridays, like silent sustained reading on Tuesdays that you can do. And, and with that, it was more the conferencing than the reading piece that really made it sit in her brain right. that we can do to make those practices long-term and they're just a minor adaption to what we do short-term anyways, sometimes. You, you nailed it. How? People want to know, how do I do this? And, and, and Fishbowl Fridays. And, and you just got me thinking here. I scribbled it down. You should, 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 uh, I'm envisioning a wheel of fortune ideas where, where when you take a concept in your class, just, just, just thought about this while you were talking. How could we do it? Take, take ideas as you get to them. Put them on the wheel of fortune board, and every once in a while, I'll give that sucker a spin, and it comes around to, oh, equilibrium of blah 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 blah. Remember that? That was that was four weeks ago. Let's let's have a quick conversation. What what was that all about? And it's just bring it back around for a conversation. Um, I I had a similar question, Heather. Not the how, but a teacher in one of them in Florida. And another one in a district very close to me both asked the same question when we were talking about this performance and learning business. And they, they said, well, how do I know? How, how do I know if I have a performance or a learning environment? And then one of them said, well, you have a final exam. Yeah, but they, they know that's coming. So do they cram again for that final exam weeks and weeks or months and months after first taking the test? After we first take that information, someone would have reason to say, well, yeah, we still don't know. So I came up with an idea. The idea is called, I'm just wondering. And, and the idea, we tried it. We tried it in this district, both districts where the teachers were, were sharing this. I said, here's what you should do. One of them was a math teacher. He was a grade, grade 11 or 12 math teacher. His name was Will. And I think he'd be fine with me sharing this. I said, Will, do you, do you take a concept of some kind? early in the course that doesn't necessarily show up again. Mm, well, a lot of it shows up again because it's math and it kind of builds on itself. But yeah, there's, there's some, there's some things like that. Here's what I would do. It's called, I'm just wondering sometime, eh, what would be a good, what would be a good tool? Maybe during a unit test of some kind that you have put a box on the last page called, I'm just wondering. 
do you understand blank? Or can you describe this? You're coming back to that topic that you touched on a month or two months ago, but you haven't really revisited it formally. And the student had no idea that this was going to show up. And he goes like, but don't grade it, right? No, 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 don't. We always lunge for that red pen, don't we? Like, no, don't grade it. Just check in. And he did it. And he wrote me, he called me in one of our meetings. He said, hey, Myron, I did that. I'm just wondering. And he goes, you know, my students did okay on it. Like, it was pretty good. I said, well, you got some feedback there, didn't you? That there's a pretty good chance they learned that if, if a month and a half later, they did a, people can explain it and, and revisit it. He said, yeah, but, but there's also some, some evidence I think I have on another question I did that, that they didn't. Because a lot of people were like, that was a month and a half ago. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Well, maybe you could then break down what was the learning activity for the one versus the learning activity for the other. And I'm not calling this the most robust research data you could ever find, but it does give you an idea whether or not what you did was learned or did they just perform at the time. I want to put out there for our listeners, all of this can be found in Myron's new book. <laughs> I think most of it. I like, oh, oh are my students going to listen to this? Uh, we're doing kind of a grand experiment. We're doing this, this really interesting experiment at the moment in our school. Um, I told them a story and this maybe maybe this, the whole length of this story needs to be on another day. But let's just say when I was 16, <laughs> when I was 16 years old, I may or may not have scaled a fence, snuck onto the Winnipeg Blue Bombers football field, helped the kicker by handing him footballs in order to get close enough to the stage where the monkeys were setting up so I could get Mickey Dolan's autograph. And, and maybe not my finest moral moment, but I got it and I end up, ended up running to the same fence being chased by security and getting back on the other side and the security guys were closer to what my age is now and I can't climb a fence as well now as I did at 16. So I got out with Mickey Dolan's autograph. Oh, and by the way, I played, I threw around the football with Mickey Dolan's for about 20 minutes. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I wrote, I wrote him recently on Twitter saying, I'm the guy that threw the football with you in Winnipeg. You remember that? I never got it. Um, I mean, I'm just lowly Myron Duick. I'm no Mickey Dolan's. Um, and, and anyway, here's what we did. I went into an English class of a teacher in our school who's super interested in this memory conversation. And I told this story, just told it. And it was part of, a, it was part of an activity, but our plan was I was going to come back a month and a half later and walk on in going, hey, I'm just wondering. And we had them work in a group with the promise of a pizza party if they could be very detailed and get the story in chronologically correct order. Because there was about 15 or 20 elements to it. Well, what they did is they did very, very well as a group saying, okay, okay, it was a football thing. And da, da, da. The experiment isn't over yet. Because these students are going into grade 12, we are going to, um, what you might say, about a year after the original telling of the story, we're going to find a reason to have those students come back to the same room. And we are going to 
test them one more time on that information. Trying to replicate a little bit of Cepeda's research. The first telling of the story occurred. Then there was a, a gap till we revisited it. And now the retention interval we want to test is a year later. How are you doing on that story? And we kept their individual, like we've, I, this is, okay. On my revisit, we asked everybody to, to put the list of things they remember and put them in order. We collected those. Then they worked as a group to get it right for the pizza, trying to add an incentive. We kept all those original lists. So we're going to be able to compare a year later, how close are they on their own individual assessment data with this grand fun experiment called, I'm just wondering. And listen, any student who might might stumble on this come please let me know that you're not going to tell everybody in record experiment okay so if students at summerland secondary are listening to, <laughs> to third eye fess up let us know too <laughs> okay. myron i'm i'm just wondering um even yeah. though we're running short on time i'm going to ask you this question anyways before we go to to blinks but what i want to know is um what have you discovered or learned about student self-reporting on their own learning? This is something that I, I'm just super interested in what you've got to say. Oh man. Well, we, we started on a little odyssey of this at the high school I was at at the time, Summerland Secondary. I was vice principal there and I was doing a lot of this, a lot of my education work as well. It's been a nice little marriage of, of kind of two occupations at once. And we, we just started Heather with a, simple templates that were kind of three level and in my own leadership class I, I think this one's in my book it's certainly on my website it's you know the, the the bottom of the three levels is something like i'm a follower the middle level is called middle person or something and then the top is called game changer so three just picture a template that's got three levels on it my colleague marnie mental who shows up in the book she was teaching foods at the time and her three levels were top shelf middle shelf crisper we just got students to describe every three weeks or so, give us something where you've been really making it happen, which is that top level. Give us something that you're kind of, yeah, you know what, I'm smack dab in the middle of this kind of learning. And, and give us an example of something that you're either struggling with or an area you haven't been feeling confident or whatever. It was fascinating, Heather, and so simple to do. It just gave us an idea of student self-reporting on three levels. It's all we need. We don't need more than three levels for that kind of conversation. It's a bit like the ski hills, right? The green, the green runs, the blue runs, and the black runs. Like, like three levels do. It's enough for people to have a conversation. One other thing that really came, comes to mind is a boy by the name of Xavier. I write about him too. And I, I in fact, I, I give him a lot of credit for my latest book just as a concept because when I was asking him to recall what his thoughts on self-reporting from grade 10, this very form I'm telling you about, this three-leveled leadership form, he was, he was sitting there and, and I had the audio rolling and I now use this in some of my presentations. So, so some folks even here might've seen it. I'm asking Xavier about self-reporting and he, he's in grade 12. He's got about a month left in our school. And he says, yeah, I remember back in grade nine something. I go, what? Because well, I got this N on my report card and it wasn't, wasn't from my class, but it's a different class. And he said, you know, I got this N, which means needs improvement on effort. And, and I was like, man, I was going in at lunch and, and I, had, I had said to my buddy, I'm, I'm going to try really hard in this class. And, and then I get this report card and it's got an N on it for effort. 
And he's like, I came in at lunch. I did all these things. And as he was leaving, Heather, he was walking out of the room. And I don't mean to make this like a Walton's moment where everybody's going to get a tear in their eyes. That's not the intention. But he, he turns back to me and he says, you know, when it comes to reporting my effort, why don't they ask me? Hmm. That's a damn good question. Absolutely. 100%. Really good question. So it's not just academics, Heather. It's, it's the, the things that it's the things that only we could know about ourselves. And, and which is why I touch on Tolosano's work in the book, Sylvia Tolosano and, and Hale, I believe, are the two authors of reporting on digital learning. But they use this analogy of an iceberg that so often in our reporting, we talk about the iceberg portion we can see, the stuff above the surface, which Sylvia says, as soon as you get into digital portfolios, people just take pictures of what they did. I said, yeah, it's exactly what they do. Yeah, I built a, I built a, a coffee table in woodshop. So they take a picture of the coffee table and that's what they put in their portfolio. Well, everybody knew that. Everybody knew they made the coffee table. What Sylvia Tolosano says is maybe an idea is, why don't you get them to talk about some part of that coffee table construction, which was frustrating or an epiphany or, or a time that somebody else stepped in and really helped them. Something that she says is below the surface that only that person could know. That's, that's the nugget of reporting that's valuable. So it was like, that's a really good idea. So we've been, we've been incorporating that in our district yeah, as, as, with elementary kids in particular. Talk about what's below the surface. So I don't know. That's, that's a little bit on self-reporting right now. That same teacher that I went and told the, told the, mon- told the monkey story to, she was doing desirable difficulty journaling. Talk about something in the last week that was a desirable difficulty. We're trying to change the language of difficulty in our school, that it's a good thing. And now students have a green light to talk about something they struggled with in math. And what did they learn from that struggle? That journal idea was awesome. And I have some really, really good examples of those journal entries from students. Okay, is that enough rambling about self-reporting? Love that. <laughs> so as you're our first guest back, Meyer. Mm-hmm. We've had everybody else do a blink of three eyes, including you. Yes. With rapid fire questions. And this is going to sound like a rude question. Have you evolved your thinking enough in the last six months that we can do it again? Uh, yes, I have. And Phil. Of course. How about you? Have you, have, yeah, do, you yeah. do you have new things too? All right, let's go. First question. What podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately? Um... Besides giving students a say, Myron's book, I would recommend uh, George Saunders' latest book, uh, Swimming in a Pond in the Rain. George Saunders is a fiction writer and he's very much celebrated, but this book is nonfiction and in it he shares with readers six or seven, can't recall now, short Russian stories. And he basically teaches the reader how he would teach his MFA class at Syracuse University. And so you get inside the mind, not only of a deeply, you know, consequential thinker, but also a great teacher and somebody who is unpacking these stories through the lens of applications to life and how they resonate with students. And especially for teachers, I would recommend a swim in a pond in the rain, George Saunders. Fascinating. Um, the book I'm reading right now, I just have to do a shout out for this book. Um, it, it's off topic. I'm reading a book called Jackpot. It says, it, and its subtitle is uh, The Life of the Super Rich and Why It's Concerning for All of Us. 
just got to throw it out there. That book is incredibly fascinating about how do you go about trying to spend $300 billion if that's what you're worth. Anyway, just got to throw out there a book called Jackpot. I, I cracked open a book that I haven't looked at in a long time the other day. And it's, it was written around my most influential English teacher. A woman in Georgia was on a call. We were doing a session with, with a couple hundred educators on it. And she's, we just did a question and answer at the end. She goes, Myron, I'm teaching grade six in Atlanta, Georgia. And my grade six boys will not read. Uh, I'd got any advice. And that's when I cracked open my most influential English teacher book. And I showed her a cover of a Sergeant Rock comic, DC Comics, Sergeant Rock. He's my most influential English teacher. And the shout out for Sergeant Rock is, I said to her, that is all I read from about grade seven to grade 10. That's it. <laughs> I, I, I did not read Tess of the Dubervilles. I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm just going to, I'm going to admit that right now. I never opened it, although I took the test on it. I did the journal entries for it. I did not read it. Um, sorry, Miss Hebert. I didn't. Um, but, but what I said to her is, get those boys reading, get, get them reading, uh, read just about anything, as long as it's more, you know, not immoral, I guess, or something like, and I going to shout out to Sergeant Rock. The funny thing about the, the labels we give ourselves, you guys, you know, I, I don't, I don't often say this, but I'm going to in context. Last I checked, there's, there's two book spines now that have my name on it. And I still don't call myself a writer. I, I went through school, not, associating myself with success in English. And, and I still hold on to that. I'm, I have a hard time letting that go. And, and I, that's why I said to her, just, just get them to read, you know, and so much for a blink of an eye. Hey, Nick, like, um, uh, that's just too long. <laughs> okay. okay. Our second one is that we really value innovation. What is one innovation that you've seen recently or that you would really like to see? Phil, you want to start us off? Oh, uh, yes. Um, yeah. And it turns out that Myron and I are in the same meeting last week and um, the innovation was, and, you know, I know this is happening elsewhere, but it, it worked so well that day. And that was that um, there was a group of whatever, 15 or 20 educators, but there were also four or five students present and um, they were so thoughtful and the way that their responses uh, contributed to and shifted and just um, everything about the conversation was, I thought, much more productive um, and, of course, much more tailored to doing school with young people. And so just the fact that um, their voices um, were, again, so um, necessary uh, and that sometimes we sort of forget that and that that aligns nicely with, I think, this whole conversation of of, uh, of doing school with students instead of to them. And um, we have to listen. Yeah. Oh, gold, Phil. That's, I, I was so stoked that those students were in that session. They just kept bringing up, oh, it was awesome. Um, kept bringing up really good points, what I was going to say. Um, an innovation. You know, I, I, I keep thinking a little bit about Winston Churchill's words when he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, I don't think he was mocking the Second World War. He was just saying that when you get your cities bombed into oblivion, there's going to have got to be got to take something from it and, and make it better. This whole COVID thing, I'm seeing I'm seeing some residue of 
of making sure we collect everybody's thoughts in ways and make things open and, and, and accessible. Nick, you were talking about rubric design for students being accessible for language. Uh, just a little thing I saw, there's many different versions of this, but Jamboard, just getting people to feel that they can put their voice out there and tack it up on the, on the digital bulletin board kind of thing and saying, here's kind of what I want to get out of this. It's just a really, really nice little piece of innovation that I think we're gonna we're gonna take from this era and make sure we incorporate it and, and know that teachers all have a voice. I think when we do that, they're gonna see the greater need for all students to have a voice. Why not use Jamboard in the classroom? Listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on learning. What might that first action be? I was gonna say something else, um, but then I, I don't. I'm tempted to say something that's complicated. Um, but I, I'm really thinking about, because of a number of different prods, including this conversation and Myron's book um, and the world, that uh, I need to unpack and I think reassemble my understanding of like what success is, what merit is. And I think the definition I'm going to come up with once I've devoted some time to that is going to be um, much, much improved. So I think we've been so narrow in like performance has to look like this to be good or proficient or um, success, you know, only follows this channel instead of thinking about the the myriad other possibilities, the other expressions, the other um ways that we can arrive at, um, at, at sometimes goodness and other times greatness that don't necessarily align with our sort of very um, well-established into ruts almost ways of defining merit. So that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I'm gonna, it's making me think these days about something teachers could do with this. And Phil, I think that's a great suggestion for people. Mine is to go steal, steal John Hattie's idea out of the forward that he wrote for the book, the, my latest one. And he, you know, I, I, I got it here and just to kind of put his words, he says, he says in his, in his forward, I'd invite teachers to carry out two simple tasks. First, ask your students to grade their own performance on the next test before they start it. Secondly, after you've graded the test and written thorough comments, ask your students to write a short list of statements describing what they have learned about their learning and where they need to move next. Uh, I think those are, those are two really, really simple suggestions as to how to incorporate students in this process. And, you know, he's, when we interviewed him for our documentary called Ask Them, he said, you know, he goes in his Australian accent, the simplest of the law, the simplest of the law, give back what you have graded students, give back that feedback and then ask them to interpret it. And I was like, that is, that's just stuff I could never think of. You know, that, that's what the John Hatties of the world. So simple. Just ask them to interpret it. And, and I can tell you, I, I did this in one of my volleyball practices where I had a fairly complex drill and I turned to one of the students and I said, can you please, can you please describe this drill in another way than, than what I have? And it's just asking for that interpretation. And, and you're going to know in an awful hurry whether all those, all those comments you give back, all that time you spend on, ass on assessment and comments and all that, is, is it being understood? Um, might be nice to find out. 
<laughs> you know, um, circling back around to that math teacher who was nervous about trying um, trying that thing I called the uh, I'm just wondering. He said, I'm kind of nervous about finding out. I said, I would be too. But, but, but isn't it nice to know? He goes, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll get back to you on it. So ah, it's okay to be a little nervous. It was just, this was awesome. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you guys. I was so, so happy to see Phil from Rochester as well. And just been a, been a great, been a great few, probably in the last, the last couple of years, just continuing to cross paths. And Phil, I know, and I hear about the fantastic work you're doing. And I just tell every time you open your mouth, you're a learner, right? We're all learners. Uh, And you just make it so clear to me that, that, that there's more to learn all the time in this thing called education. So wherever you are, they're lucky to have you. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. Well, I'm learning a lot from your books and your uh, presence at PD. And um, really, I enjoy the conversation so much. Thank you. You're going to have to take that sound clip and make it your answering machine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Myron Dweck for joining us today. Thank you, as always, to Dover Iota for supporting this podcast. Thank you to Heather Like, Michael Carroll, and Nick Truxel for hosting the podcast, and to Michael Terrell for writing our theme song. Make sure you join us next time for conversations with Gori and Amit Sud on social-emotional learning and mental health, as well as in the future for conversations with Craig Kemp, EdTech expert, as well as Joy Scott and Terry O'Reilly. We look forward to having you back on Third Eye.